0: We are diving back into Hebrews this morning. And I wanted to give you a quick overview, if you haven't been with us, or it's been a couple of weeks, uh, because it has been a couple of weeks at least since I've gotten to be in Hebrews. Uh, And Hebrews is not, I don't know, I realized this week going back from Malachi to Hebrews, it's not an easy book. So if you've forgotten or can't quite remember where we have been at the past couple of weeks, the whole point of Hebrews has been to show how Jesus is greater than fill in the blank, that everything we have in Jesus, all this stuff that God was pointing to in the Old Testament, this foundation that he was laying, all these things he's working on, all this finds its fruition in Christ. And we're kind of seeing more and more, oh, if this is who Jesus is, I can actually trust the reconciliation work that God is doing, which should sound a lot like Malachi, because that's exactly what we were seeing there. But week one, we talked about how Jesus was greater than angels, Right. We talked about that's kind of a weird comparison to start with. But the author of Hebrews does that to say, no, to be a child of God is infinitely better than to be a servant of God. What God is after of us is to be his children more than his servants. Week two, we talked about how Jesus is greater than godly power, production and self. Right. Jesus has all power tells us straight up in the New Testament, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me, right? I'm not asking you to go take it in my name. I already have it. And he says, I'm, I'm also your salvation, right? You don't have to produce to be right with me. I, I've already done that for you. And he also says, look, I have suffered in your place. Your sufferings do not define who you are because Jesus has suffered in our place. Week three, we talked about how Jesus was greater than Moses. and was one of my... Favorite analogies in scripture that I didn't even discover until this series about how you know, we tend to think about the kingdom work as what we are building. And yet the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 3, no, God is the one doing the building. right? Well, God is the builder. We are the houses. We're actually the ones being built more than we are the ones doing the building. So we say, hey, then let's trust what the builder is doing. Right? If, if he knows, if he's got the blueprints, and he's the one that can and is doing the work, let's trust the one who does the work. That was week three. Last week, Daryl spoke in uh, for me. Daryl's an old friend and ministry mentor of mine, so I was grateful he got to be here. But he talked about how Jesus is greater than our heart condition, that he's able to actually save and transform our hearts, and he overcomes our sin ...in the process, right? So these are all the different pictures we're seeing of Jesus. Today, some of you guys have headings in your scriptures. The, the, the kickoff for this passage is Jesus, the great high priest. We're going to see today how Jesus is greater than Aaron's priesthood, right? We spent, we spent, how long did we spend? I think we spent right out a year going through Exodus together. And we saw all those pictures of what were the Old Testament priests supposed to do... What were they pointing towards? And we talked about how all of these were pictures of something better to come. Now the author of Hebrews is going to say that that thing better has come. And that thing that's better is Jesus. So, guys, we're going to see two things out of our Hebrews text this morning. We're going to see what does it look like to be a priesthood in Jesus's vein, right? What did Jesus's priesthood look like? And we're also going to see because of that, then what does that mean for us? Right. What does it look like for us to step up and be a priest as well? So the, the main point where we're going, Jesus' priesthood sympathizes with weakness and intercedes for others before God. Those are the two things his priesthood is characterized by. He sympathizes with weakness and he intercedes for others before God. So therefore, we abide in his grace and his example we recognize the grace that has been shown to us and we you could say the phrase pay it forward but we look to live that out in everything we do. So we're going to pick up Hebrews this morning chapter 4 verse 14 we're going to go to about verse 10 to chapter 5. It says since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer sacrifices, or to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated. I love that. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. After the order of Melchizedek. Father, we ask for your wisdom and your discernment to be upon us this morning. God, Hebrews is just one of these books that there is so much in there that sometimes we kind of can get lost in the weeds, Lord. Uh, There's a lot of deep things that the author of Hebrews was trying to cover for his audience. But Father, you have been showing us each week about this work that you're doing in our world, in our lives, of reconciling, of making all things at peace and at rightness with your image. God, that you did this through Jesus. Father, we've been seeing about how we're tempted to to take that and distort that or take that and make things happen in our own ways. And God, you're over and over again, you show us in Hebrews and all these other places in Scripture we've been studying, we need to trust what you have done in Christ. So, Father, as we come to you this morning, may you just show us another way of how we can trust you and how in our trust, Lord, that that changes something about us. Father, that changes the way we interact with others. That changes the way we engage our world. It It changes who we are, Father, to be more like you. So let us see that this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so one of the themes that Daryl left off on last week at the end of Hebrews 4 is this idea of being brought into rest with God. And it, I wanted to start there this morning because I realized that's not, rest is not something that characterizes most of our lives. That's why we're constantly barely making it to things on time or slightly late, right? Because we have so full schedules. And yet it's interesting to see. That the author says, no, what we're doing in Christ is we're actually striving to be at rest. Because rest is being at peace with. So we actually want to be at rest, at peace with God. And it's in that context that he then talks about this great high priest that we have in Jesus. Now, we, we probably don't have as good an understanding of what priesthood is as maybe those in a Catholic tradition or in other denominations might have. Because when you and I think about priests, we, I mean, the first place my mind goes is I picture the Pope, right? Like that's, that's kind of what a priest is. But the, the way that we probably more think about priesthood, actually, I was realizing this week, it tends to be a lot like the Pharisees, right? Sometimes when I say priest, we tend to think of a, a defender, ...or a guardian, right? Like, we know what truth is. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. And it's our responsibility as priests to uphold and defend that. But some of us also think, well, priests are just, like, setting the example, right? Like, they were supposed to show for the whole people that this is who God is... ...and this is what he wants. And you kind of get some echoes of that in the lives of the Pharisees. And that's where it's easy for us to pick on them. But to say, you know... It wasn't an entirely wrong picture, but it was incomplete, incomplete at best. There's something different that's going on when Jesus shows up and says, this is what it is to be a priest. So in his example today, we see two big things in our scripture. The first is that he sympathizes with our weakness. Now, I want to unpack that a little bit because sympathize with weakness is just, I don't know, it's kind of a weird wording in English. We're like, I, what exactly does that mean? So the, the Greek, the original language there, sympathize comes from sympatheo, so you can kind of see where we get sympathy from in that verb. It means to feel for, to have compassion for, but also to be affected with the same feeling as. So another word you could put there, you could put compassion in there, you could put empathy in there where you're literally feeling what someone else is feeling. Now weakness, weakness is a verb or it's a noun in the Greek that sometimes it means like a physical sickness or a physical disease, but it's also a spiritual one too. So this is basically the author saying Jesus is able to feel what we feel when we face sin. But we're told that Jesus has in every respect felt this. He has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Okay, so there's there's one key difference. And I love that in every respect he's been tempted. It's the same word that's used in Exodus. So this is going all the way back to last year when we were going through Exodus. When God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel. And Israel looks at God and goes, holy cow, you are... You are so glorious, God. Moses, can you just kind of, like, we're just, we're going to back away a little bit, okay? It's intimidating to be in the presence of a holy God. Moses, why don't you kind of intervene for us? And God shows up and says, no, 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 I'm not giving you the law to push you away. In fact, I have tested you to prove that you can be with me in a covenant. He says, I've tested you to prove your faith. So it's this picture that because of this testing, this temptation that has undergone, we can actually be drawn into a right relationship with God. And I started thinking, where in Scripture do we get to see what is Jesus tempted like? And for many of you, you may be familiar with Matthew 4. In fact, if you flip there, your scriptures will probably say the temptation of Jesus or Jesus in the wilderness, something along those lines. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to show you because I just, I love uh, to quote the A-team. I love when a plan comes together. I love when you start to see bits and pieces of things from scripture fit. So you guys have heard me for the past year. We've been talking about sin as this Power, production, self kind of narrative. Well, Jesus, if you read the temptations he faces in the wilderness, it's all three of those. Satan shows up. Matthew 4, 3 says, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Why don't you do something? Produce to prove you are who you say you are. Then Satan says, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. 4, 5. Prove who you are. Prove yourself. Jesus, because if you show up and do this thing, other people will respond if you are who you say you are. And then verses 8 and 9, he says something to the effect of, I will give you all power and authority over earth if you'll worship me. Jesus, do this, I'll give you power. So we've been seeing sin as a temptation of power, production, or self. And that's exactly, guys, what Jesus has gone through yet each time jesus in his response to satan he quotes god's word he says no no satan god's work god's image has nothing to do with power production or self god's reconciliation work is all who he is it's dependent on who god is so satan you You can take whatever you have and go play with it over there. That is not something I'm interested in. And so we're seeing here in Hebrews, the author says, look, Jesus has gone through what we've gone through. He has felt that same pull of power, of production of self that we face daily, guys. And yet we're told here, Jesus, though, out of compassion, out of empathy, out of being affected with the same feeling for us in our sin, Christ has not slipped. Christ has not stumbled into sin. The earthly priest did. We're told in Matthew, or right here in Hebrews 5, 2 through 3, the priest still had to offer sacrifices. So this is Jesus saying, I'm showing up and showing you what the Old Testament priests were supposed to point to. But thank God we have such a great high priest in Jesus who he deals gently, he sympathizes with what you and I have gone through. I think about the moments when you and I tend to feel broken the most. I mean, how much a difference does it make just to know that there's someone who, who understands, right? Who knows what it's like to go through and to walk through where you've been. And here we see not only does Jesus know one experience that you've had, Jesus can perfectly relate with every single experience that you have walked through. And yet he says, even though I have every reason to say, hmm, see, I was able to do it. And why haven't you been able to figure it out? Jesus deals gently with us. That's the first thing. The second thing, he intercedes for others before God. And I wanted to pause real quick because before I read Hebrews 5, 1, I realize intercedes is a very churchy word that we don't tend to use. Actually, I meant to ask you before service, Joel. I was thinking maybe in a legal sense you've used the word intercede before, but I can't think of any other context where you, we have probably used stepping in on behalf of someone. But the verse, Hebrews 5.1, kind of gives a perfect description. So here's what interceding looks like. It says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. There you go priests appointed to act on behalf of man in relation to God. So when I say intercede, you're you're stepping in someone's place between them and God to bring the two together. Sounds nice. What does this look like? Thank you, author of Hebrews. This is where he goes next. Verse 2, he says, "...it looks like dealing gently with the wayward and ignorant, since he himself is beset with weakness." Beset, again, another word that I have not used until just now, uh, but that's a word that communicates being surrounded by something. Okay, So similar to Jesus being tempted in every way, not full of it, not as if he has sinned, surrounded by it, can relate to it. So that's part of our interceding, what Jesus does for us. He deals gently with us because he can, he can relate. Verse 3, offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So this is another thing where the Hebrews author is making the distinction. The Old Testament priests, they could not keep themselves from sin. They had to offer sacrifices for them. Jesus, we've just said, Jesus didn't have that problem. Jesus, being God, did not ever step into sin, but he still offered sacrifices on our behalf for God. We're told in verse 4, no one takes this honor for themselves. So, priests, in that intercessory role, you've taken yourself out of the equation. Right? You're not looking for how it benefits you. You're not looking for how you can step and say, now, you know what you did wrong and why we're having to go to God, right? Or God, you know what they've done wrong, right? Like, just let me, let me refresh you in case you haven't seen this. The priests are not stepping in in that role. They are not looking for honor themselves. They are just looking to make peace between someone and God. Verse 7 tells us that we offer up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. Prayers. So we're praying for others. But there's also supplications. And I I apologize because... I feel like we're running into a lot of words that we don't tend to use in English as much, but supplications is a really cool one. So the word there, it's, I'm going to butcher it, but it's hekateria. hekateria, Choose, Choose whichever you think sounds better, something along those lines. It's Greek, you know, if you go tell your friends, they're probably not going to correct you. But the only other time we see this exact word used in scripture is in the book of Job and it's describing someone sitting under the shade of a tree. Now bear with me because there is an important connection here. How do you get from praying for someone and a specific kind of prayer for someone to sitting under the shade of a willow tree? In the Old Testament, the two kind of big ways that people talk about God's judgment being poured out. It's typically referenced as either like a fire beating down or raining down on something or a, a wind from the east coming in, okay? But if you're sitting under the shade of a tree, you're being blocked by fire, the sun, the light coming down, and you're also blocked from the wind, right? Because you've you've got these great big branches that are taking the brunt. So in the Old Testament, to sit in the shade of a tree gives you this idea of I'm being covered. I'm being almost graciously kept from a judgment that's being poured out on me. So when Jesus here is told that he made prayers, but he made supplications, it's an idea that what Jesus was praying for, for you and me, both in the physical things we face, in the, in the circumstances of life we go through, in our spiritual lives, he's saying, I want them to be right with God. I am putting myself in the place of being that tree that's going to stand between them and God's judgment. I'm going to pray that they would be made right with God. I mean, it's, it's cool to watch How even here in Hebrews, they just go back to all this Old Testament imagery and say, look, we've been saying the same thing all along. This is what God is desiring. So this is part of being the priest, interceding, being that willow tree. We also see lastly, the the last little bit, verses 8 and 9, that Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So he learned to obey God and in doing so, He takes up this intercessory role. And he makes an eternal salvation, different from the Old Testament priests, right? It was very temporal. It's only until the next sacrifice had to be offered. But Christ gives us this eternal salvation. So we've got from Hebrews here this picture of what Jesus' priesthood looks like. This, when we think about what does it mean to be a priest, it's these two big things. We deal gently. We sympathize. With weakness, and we intercede for others before God. So, if this is what Jesus has done, let's go back and look through the text. What does that tell us about me? Because the author of Hebrews does give some specific charges to his audience to say, if this is who Jesus is, this is what this looks like for you. He begins in verse 14, right off the bat. Since then, because, therefore, since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast. Our confession. Hold fast the idea of trust. I'm gonna to cling to this. Like this. This is good. I can build a life on this. Hold fast. Confession. Well, what what have they confessed? What are they proclaiming? The gospel. Right? So you're you're almost saying, hold fast our confession sounds a lot like trust God's reconciliation work. Thank you, Malachi, for coming right back here. Same message. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Again, go back to Exodus 20. God says, I'm not showing up to make you feel how bad you ought to feel in your brokenness. God says, I can tell you what's broken. It's anything that's not me. But my point is not to push you away to make you deal with your brokenness and come back to me. My work is I want you to draw near and not just draw near like Oh, geez, I hope I'm covered. I hope God's not going to come at me today. It says, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. That last bit in time of need is better translated at the right time, which is exactly what Paul says in Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This idea that if if Jesus is dealing gently, sympathizing with us in our weakness, if he's interceding on our behalf, we have all confidence to dwell with God. We have everything we need, I think is the way the study at the Bowman's house puts it. We have everything we need to live at peace with God. What we are called to do is go do that. Draw near. Hold fast to the confession. And the author says, in case I'm just telling you something, and you're like, why do I have to do that? He says, because that's what the Old Testament priests were pointing to. That's what Jesus was pointing to. The Old Testament priesthood, the author explains, they dealt gently with the ignorant and the wayward, verse 2. Because they dealt gently, verse 3, they offered sacrifices. He ties the two of them together, right? Right? we don't just get to pick and choose who we want to deal gently with, who we want to sympathize in weakness with. Now, we often do, but the author says, no, we're not. we're not picking and choosing. We're going to deal gently with those people and not with those people. We're going to step in on behalf of those people and not for those people. The author says, no, because we are dealing gently, we will step in and intercede, as the priest did. And we're told Jesus... Verse 5 through 10, I mean, these are just all these ways that the author says, no, Jesus is the same, right? He has stepped in and done what these Old Testament priests were supposed to do. It's this beautiful picture that when you and I come face to face with Christ, with one who knows exactly who we are, who knows exactly what we struggle with, who knows all the brokenness, all the messed up stuff that's wrong In our lives. Things that maybe nobody else knows about. Christ knows. And yet Christ's response. Is empathy. Is one of dealing gently with our weakness. Is one of saying because of your weakness. I will step in between you and God. Because I want you to be made right with God. And God says look. Trust this, abide in this, receive this grace, share this grace with others, this beautiful picture. So as we start to think about application before we close this morning, I was was trying to come up with a story to kind of illustrate this for you. And I realized Jesus has already beaten me to the punch, okay? So I am going to read, there's one parable that you may be familiar with, but it's not... We don't tend to read it in the same light that, that we're going to see it in today. Okay, It's a parable from Matthew 18. It's typically under the heading, the parable of the unforgiving servant. That may be a, a parable you're familiar with. But as we read it, or as I read it, guys, just listen to hear the same themes from what we just saw come right up. Okay, Here, there's going to be some gentle dealing. There's going to be some interceding. There's going to be an opportunity to abide and trust, you're going to see it get kind of horribly butchered, and you're going to kind of see the side effects of that. So just listen and say, okay, more than about forgiveness, there's, there's a deeper work that's being done here. So this is Matthew 18, beginning in verse 23, going down to 35. Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Right? I know typically, at least if you had this a similar church upbringing to me, this parable was told with the focus on the forgiveness, right? See how this guy, the 10,000 talents or whatever that number was is a, uh, to believe the math conversions, it's like 20 years of a day's wage, right? 20 years worth of wages that the master just cancels. And then this guy couldn't go out and forgive 100 denarii, which was like one day. So one day, 20 years, look at this big divide, look at how great a grace we've had. We need to go show this grace with others. All that is true. But there is something deeper at work here. Because you see, first off, this parable starts with a king who wants to settle accounts. He wants to, his goal, make peace between himself and his people. Sounds like what we've been seeing God is trying to do with us. And the master, as he sees one who can't pay, he shows him what should happen. Right, That servant should be held accountable for what he's done. But the servant pleads, and what the master does is he says he takes pity. There's a picture of a gentle dealing going on. I understand, servant, that you have no way on earth you're going to be able to pay me back 20 years' worth of lost wages takes pity. He also forgives the debt, which to me is stronger than just forgiveness because it's a picture of interceding, right? If the king is going to forgive that debt, what happens to that cost, right? It's still somewhere. Someone's still on the hook. So I, I kept thinking about it. The master is saying, I'll eat that cost for you. I get that you should be held accountable for this. I'll take that instead. Don't worry. I'll eat the cost. Right, this is not just getting out of jail free. This is the master showing up and saying, because I know you have a brokenness that you cannot reconcile, and because I deeply want you to be with me, I will be willing to deal gently with you and to step in your place to make sure you can be with me. A beautiful picture of what God has done for us. Now, what does the servant do? The servant is now in this newfound freedom, right? Oh, I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm not judged anymore. I'm, I've been forgiven. And you would think he's got this perfect example. God says, essentially, look, I have forgiven you of all of this. Now I'm going to let you practice this. Here's a fellow man of yours. He, he has a little tiny debt, right? How are you going to treat him? and immediately the language of what the servant does becomes painfully clear because you see he seizes him and he begins to choke him i immediately get the picture of homer simpson and bart simpson where he's just he's got him by the neck and he's saying you you know a bunch of other stuff that just mutters but it's he is seizing and he's choking right last time i checked seizing and choking is the opposite of dealing gently with So it's not an accident that we're seeing the violent language. He also throws him in prison. That's a way of saying, you think I'm going to eat your cost? No, you're responsible to make your own cost. You go sit in prison until you can figure this out, right? The servant literally goes, and because of his conviction that he is in the right, I've been forgiven, the way he then goes to treat others is not with the same grace that was shown to him, but with a, you better learn to fix this on your own until you can be right with me. What happens? The servants go to tell the master. The master calls him in and says, I cannot believe that that is how you chose to handle that. He calls him a wicked servant. Not because he did the wrong thing, but because he did not show the same mercy that had been shown to him. His heart did not match the masters. So the implications of the parable are pretty clear, right? God the master, he deals gently with us and he intercedes for us because he wants us to be made right, right? And we see that Christ Christ ate the cost for us, right? We wouldn't be here if he hadn't that the, the ransom that we see from Scripture for our sin being death. And yet Christ on the cross has fulfilled that for us. And so we being called to be the royal priesthood, we are called to take up this heart of the master. This heart that says, look, I don't really want to keep track of all this debt, whatever somebody may have done to wrong me. I'm not focused on all these different ways that someone is not right with God, my job, what I desire to do is I want them to be at peace with God. I want them to be made right with God. And because of that, that means I will choose to deal gently with and to intercede with others. And I realized this week, guys, it, it breaks my heart because often we don't look like the master. And it especially it especially seems to be a hard thing for us when we communicate our convictions with one another. The way that we handle, and and I just, I'm saying this across a broad range, right? Convictions as far as politics goes, what we believe should or shouldn't be done on both sides. Uh, The way that we believe people should make decisions about their lives, just simple moral decisions. Like just the way that we hold our convictions. If we ask the world, hey, Do we look more like the master? Do we handle our convictions gently around others? Do do our convictions, and not gently in the sense that I'm just letting them go, but gently in that watch what the master has done with his servant. I'm going to hold my convictions gently. And do our convictions reveal the weight of grace that has been shown to us? Because the servant didn't. And my fear is that more often than not, when the world looks at the church, they don't see someone with the heart of the master. they see a group of people with the heart of the servant. We get, at times, we can get so blinded by our convictions that we forget the grace that has been shared to us, and that that grace at the end of the day is what makes people right. With God, the king who wished to settle accounts in showing grace settled the account. His work was fulfilled. And yet the servant goes so far as to try to take power over another fellow image bearer. It's it's the irony of ironies that the master dealt gently and interceded with someone because of their broken debt. And yet we tend to look at the broken debt and others and justify why we should not intercede or why we should not deal gently with them. Guys, what we've seen in the parable, in the Old Testament priests, in Christ's life, in the Hebrews passage, all of this says that is not the heart of God. Having the convictions is not the issue but the way in which we are communicating them, the way that we are handling them, the way that we are choosing to live them now. Look, this impacts every interaction we have with with spouses, with coworkers, with friends, with people we serve alongside in ministry. We we often look like that servant. And it's just mind-blowing because this parable forces us to say, why are we willing to treat others this way when we know good and well that is not the way God has dealt with us? And I I realized this week, at least for me, and I don't want to put this on you, but at least for me, I struggle with this because to live out God's reconciliation work, to trust Him, to deal gently, to intercede for someone, it is costly it costs us something. We've talked about sin as power, production, self. Typically, it costs us one of those three things. If I'm going to deal gently with somebody, if I'm going to intercede for somebody, I might not get as much power along the way. I might not be able to do all the things I would really want to do along the way. I might not, I might have this idea in my head of all the things or all the the things I want my life to look like, and I might not achieve one of them because of interceding or dealing gently with someone, right? It's costly. But I love how the master, because, guys, because his goal is for people to be right with God, he eats the cost. And in eating the cost, this servant was made right. The servant was made right. It breaks my heart when people look at the church and see the servant because we know that is not who our God is. That is not how he deals with us. Praise God, right? We would not be here if he chose to deal with us as the servant. Even more so, would he have the ability to choose to act with us like the servant, and yet he has not. So let's consider... Two application questions, and one thing for us to do as we go this week. Right, right, first question, where do we struggle to deal gently with others or intercede? Okay, it's one of my favorite quotes. Uh, I think it came from a Jen Wilkin interview, and I don't know if she was quoting somebody else, but she essentially said, uh, you repeat what you don't repair. This idea that if we can't even call out to God what we know is not quite right, then we're never, ever going to have it fixed, right? So it is it's healthy, is proper for us to be able to say, okay, God, where do I struggle with this? A good diagnostic question, I would just say, to help you start thinking about this, what things do others do or say that tend to rile you up, right? Because, man, when somebody says that thing, when somebody starts going down that van, we just get mad. Like, that's us justifying why we should not deal gently, why we should not intercede so it's good for us to say okay god what what riles me up what gets me to the point where i don't want to intercede i don't want to deal gently where is this second question where do you feel tempted to take power over brokenness instead of dealing gently with or interceding for it right where do we feel tempted to say god like we just got to step in and fix this Right, because sometimes that's that's how we relate with others. That's and how we hold opinions about um, anything under the sun. Right, where do we feel the temptation to step in and take power over brokenness instead of dealing gently with or even interceding for it? And the last thing, guys, this as we've been talking about this, I feel like we come back to this a lot. But this is not just like a works issue. This is not just a. a a moral issue. This issue right here is a heart issue. And it may be today that you and I go, God, this thing really roused me up and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to hold my convictions gently. I don't know how to intercede. I, I can't even think of an example where somebody's done that for me. I don't know what that looks like. And guys, I would encourage you, pray today to increase, that God would increase your trust in his grace an example, right? one of my favorite prayers in scripture, it's, we don't think of it as a prayer, but he's crying out to God. It's this man who has just lost his son and Jesus steps in, he says, do you believe who I am? And the guy says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. In the same sentence, he says, God, I trust this of you and I have no clue what that looks like. God, I I know that this is who you are, but Lord, I struggle, God, help me, okay? So maybe today that is where we need to say, God, I really have a hard time wanting to deal gently with this. God, I really don't want to intercede on behalf of this. God, it's really hard for me to picture working with this because of something that I strongly believe, okay? I don't believe from the passage that I can tell you there's one right way of how you need to settle what to do with that other than to say, God... I believe you. I believe I see from your word today as a priest. I need to sympathize with weakness. I need to intercede on behalf of others. God, that means for me, I need to trust you. I see that. I believe that. Help my unbelief. Okay. So I'll give us a moment to pray. Maybe that's the cry that your heart needs to have today. But let's close in prayer. And then we'll take our our time of communion afterwards. You say, O Lord, no day of my life has passed that has not proved me guilty in thy sight. Prayers have been uttered from a prayerless heart. Praise has often been praiseless sound. My best services are filthy rags. Blessed Jesus, let me find a cover in thy appearing wounds. Though my sins rise to heaven, thy merits soar above them. Though righteous unrighteousness weighs me down to hell, thy righteousness exalts me to thy throne. All things in me call for my rejection, yet all things in thee plead for my acceptance. I appeal from the throne of perfect justice to thy throne of boundless grace. Grant me to hear thy voice assuring me, by thy stripes I am healed. Thou hast been bruised from my iniquities. Thou hast been made sin for me, that I might be righteous in thee. That my grievous sins, my manifold sins, are all forgiven, buried in an ocean of thy concealing blood. I am guilty, but Lord, I am pardoned. I am lost, but God, I am saved. I am wandering, but in you, Christ, I am found. I am yet sinning, but in your spirit I am cleansed. Father, give me perpetual broken-heartedness. Keep me always clinging to thy cross. Flood my every moment with descending grace. Open to me the springs of divine knowledge, sparkling like crystal, flowing clear and unsullied through my wilderness of life. In your name we pray, Lord.